beer ball? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Sorry, Bob. <laughs> I'm self-conscious about it. <laughs> Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, author of the best-selling self-help book, Why Don't You Slide? Cheat Codes for When the World's on Hard Mode. Well, I would quickly like to alert our audience that I'm co-host Jeremy Ruggles, and I've wrote a competing self-help book called... I don't need to slide when I'm this smooth. Ruminations on soft power. <laughs> Ooh, we have competing self-help books on the podcast. I think customers commonly buy both of them together, so I'm really not worried about it. Yeah, it's yin and yang or something. A bundle. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I am co-host Peter Cook, and I did not write a book because I am way too busy rolling down the street, smoking Indo, sipping on gin and juice. (laughs) Actually, no, that sounds really irresponsible. Yeah. You're more uptight than that. (laughs) Not laid back. (laughs) With my mind on my money and my money on my mind. As a good Midwesterner should be. True. Who else we got in the house? Oh boy. I am guest host on this very special episode. It's going to you know, be a very special episode. There's going to be some really dramatic lessons learned. But in the meantime, I am uh, the manager of Des Plaines, Illinois' premier Black Sabbath cover band, Black Dabbath. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're just, we're honored to have you. <laughs> Maybe that was the most special part of this very special episode. What, what is your name, good sir? Bob Bucko Jr. I, oh. I always leave that part out, don't I? Oh, I, I remember you. You've been on a few times before. I this okay. I thought it was just deja vu or like a flashback. I didn't. I have been here. This is officially your third appearance on this podcast. If yeah. I correctly. Yep. Some Isley, some uh, Ferrante and Teicher. If we ever really settled on the pronunciation. Yeah, close Can't enough. Remember. Yeah. <laughs> It's what my uh, professor in college said, close enough for jazz. Oh, yeah. I've heard that saying before. So we had the funk episode, we had the Christmas episode, and now it's right back to the Circling funk. You want to back. tell people what record we're going to talk about today? All right. So we're going to talk about Slave's second album, The Hardness of the World. And how would you like to present this to our listeners? Hmm... So I came around to Slave the way a lot of people probably do. No, no, is... no, no, no. What song do you oh. want to play them first? <laughs> oh, dear Lord. Here we go. Cut. Which one are we doing first, Sean? You want to start with the album opener, Life Can Be Happy? Let's do that. Let's, let's hit All them with right. a little side one, side A, track one. And this is a great album to kick off summer, as this will drop on June 21st. Perfect. All right, well, here it is. Life can be happy. Mm-hmm. 
I now cordially invite you to share with us how you learned about Slave. First thing I would have heard by Slave is probably what a lot of people would be their entry point, especially people that weren't alive in the 70s, which would be uh, Slide, the biggest hit probably they had. I don't know the numbers, but they probably have bigger and I'll be proven wrong soon, but it's the jam I knew. And then I found that record one day at a flea market. And the next week I went to work at the record store I work at and bought five more Slave albums. And uh, it's been a love affair ever since. You were a quick convert, it sounds like. Oh, yeah. And how could you not be? Slide is such a jam. Like, if you're into funk music, you can't hear that song and not be just instantly in love with it. Well, true. But I think we should talk about the song we just heard. (laughs) Oh, yeah, we can do that one, too. That's (laughs) true. <laughs> what about that one? <laughs> I gotta say, from the Jeremy perspective, that all the things that are generally egregious to me, like happy lyrics or songs about <laughs> wanting you, babe, I feel like I can just overlook all of that on this album because the instruments are just so sick. Like, and it's called the hardness of the world. Yeah. <laughs> right. But it's not even overlooking it. Like it, it works and it makes sense in the context so well. Oh, that doesn't even matter to me. I, I just hate that stuff. 
<laughs> well, I mean, look who you're talking to. I generally despise it as well. It's the funk rule. If a funk band tells you to funk, it's great, right? Rock band tells you to rock, you flip them off. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, so you can sing about happy stuff and sexy stuff and all this stuff that I don't really care about in music. And if it's funky enough, you're you're all in, and uh, all in on this album for sure. How far into the we we may have said at the beginning, but I missed it. How far into their catalog is this? Is this this is early on? Yeah, this is the second album, and it was released the same year as the first album. They yeah. put out, I think, five records in four years that are pretty front to back, like solid. What's like what's interesting about the like you know they kind of have that like that disco influence and the funk stuff, but there's a lot of edge to it still, especially on the first two albums. This is seventy seven. Yeah. So, yeah. So they have some slick, like, in the rhythms and stuff, but the bass is real dirty, and it's something uh, Sean and I both arrived at independently, which is just this idea of smooth and hard. They're just kind of, especially this album, pointing the way towards them kind of with a smoother vibe. Yeah. yeah, it's like a lot of these songs have simultaneously some of the heaviest and nastiest funk rhythms. And then on top, they've got just like beautiful, smoothed out R&B vocals and oh. effects and everything. And they, they just, they marry those two elements so well. Yeah, and the horn harmonies. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, like, I think the tune we'll listen to next is a great example of what you're talking about, Sean. Mm-hmm. And if once you listen to, you know, those first five or six records, it's interesting to note the transition because the first record self-titled is more in the hard funk vein. And then the farther they went on, the more they started experimenting with more sounds and adding in these textures. And it just worked out so well for them. And, and I think it was like hugely influential on a lot of funk and R&B bands to come. I mean, you think about like... The stuff that Rick James was doing, he had the hard funk songs, and then he had the like softer stuff and the mix between. And then you think about some of the post disco boogie funk stuff and like the work of Kashif that also features this mix of the hard sounds and the smooth sounds. Yeah, having checked out their debut, the self titled one, 10 years ago when you and I were, were working at the record store, Sean, and that being my introduction to them. I hadn't really visited much of their catalog since then. And I was really surprised even on this album being their second and released the same year, how different the sound was, how how much more texture they had applied compared to yeah, that like raw, dirty funk of that first album. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a big part of how those two elements are coming together is in the mix, there is so much going on which usually would work to the detriment of something, I would think, but everything is very much in its place in the mix. And uh, like we're talking about these kind of, like these stacked layered horns, these smooth harmonies, but then there's all this, they, they make a lot of use out of like flange and stuff. There's these lots of textural things that kind of speak to like a more like evolving sound from the dirtiness of the first album. But the playing is just still beastly. Like yeah. the track we just listened to, the last couple minutes of that are like Ernie Isley's shred territory. 
Mm-hmm. You know, I thought about there's a lot of comparisons, particularly with the Isley Brothers record that you did with yeah. us, the Go All the Way record from 1980. We talked about that one being a transition in sound from them moving away from like the 70s instrument funk into incorporating more electronic instruments and influences and kind of easing their way into the 80s and i I feel like that's a a good comparison to the sounds happening here even though this one's like a full three years before again like very influential band for the history of funk music this is a turning point yeah that's kind of what i was wondering if they were working with the trends at the time but just so damn well or if they were a little bit ahead of the curve so you you would posit they're more what set other people off in that direction that became quiet storm and things like that. Yeah. I mean, I think they were a little ahead of the curve and also just the Dayton scene in general was ahead of the Mm. curve, you know, (laughs) like they were completely changing the course of funk music when all these bands were dropping in the late seventies. And Ohio players had that same trajectory kind of sonically. I come to think of it. Exactly. You know, starting out real dirty with the Westbound stuff and then just getting smoother through the seventies. But like with, Still with all the funk intact. Yeah, still keeping that hard edge. I was watching a YouTube video yesterday that ranked the states by like the amount of influential music that has come out of each state. And I got to say, Ohio was way up there on the list. (laughs) Yeah, Michigan, (laughs) Michigan and Ohio are, are like, you know, like New York and California are at the very top, but Michigan and Ohio are right up there too. I'm, I'm sorry to say. Bob, uh, I can't remember where Iowa was was ranked in there, but it, it wasn't up there with. The- I don't think Iowa remembers either. <laughs> Just missed the top forty. Yeah, Slipknot can only do so much. Um, <laughs> we can claim Slipknot and Arthur Russell if you want polarity. I don't know. Those are good ones, though. Or at least fifty-fifty. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How about we hear another track and then we can get into a little history of this band. And also I've got a little brief history on Dayton Funk and the scene that they came up in. So, Bob, what's the next song that we're going to listen to? Uh, Let's roll with Can't Get Enough of You. Perfect. This is side one, track three. I can't get enough of you. I'm so in love with you, yeah Maybe it's the thing to do That keeps me making love to you,
can't get enough of you Cause I'm so in love with you Maybe it's the thing to do That keeps me making love to you So that track in particular reminds me of another Dayton band that we recently featured, Heatwave. We talked about how they had these masterful vocal arrangements and harmonies and all of their songs would just have these unexpected shifts that just make the song twice as good. And I feel like that track by Slave is a perfect example of that element. Yeah, I think Heatwave was the first band that spotify played after i finished listening to this album (laughs) it makes a lot of sense yeah some of the dayton bands were a little more in the the funk side like the straightforward funk side but heatwave and slave had that that little extra magic that they were mixing in so we're talking about the city of dayton ohio and its place in music history yeah you nerds it's not just we're guided by voices and brainiac and the breeders are from there's (laughs) i was was just gonna say there are so many like rock bands and stuff that have come from ohio like we're just gonna focus in on their their funk music history which would be enough by itself to put the state on the map but yeah ohio just has a absurd wealth of music history going on dayton ohio is a primarily an industrial town that experienced an influx of black migration, redlining, and white flight from the 1940s to the 1970s. And that created, you know, a strong black community. And by the 70s, there was just a huge arts scene happening within it. And the Ohio Players were one of the earliest successful groups from Dayton. They actually formed way back in 1959 as a group called the Ohio Untouchables. And they were the backing band for the Falcons, who were a lesser-known soul group who had hits with the songs You're So Fine and I Found a Love, which features a young Wilson Pickett on vocals. And a crucial part of Ohio players' influence on the scene was the fact that they remained in Dayton after becoming a successful band with their first big hit in 1974. So, kind of like the Isley Brothers, they had a much longer run than most people realize. They're only familiar with like some of the later stuff that they did. But them continuing to rep Dayton after becoming superstars set a precedent that many other Dayton bands followed, especially Zapp and Roger were very known as an artist that would give back to the community and was heavily involved with all things Dayton. A short list of other legendary funk bands from the Dayton area includes Heatwave, Lakeside, Phase O, Dayton, and Aura. And then some other notable Ohio funk bands also include the Isley Brothers, the OJs, and Bootsy Collins. That's just scratching the surface. Just scratching the surface, absolutely. (laughs) Let me reiterate again that that's absurd if you know anything about Ohio. I know we have. You said that on our Heat Wave episode, too. Yeah. (laughs) We have a lot of listeners outside of America and. From my experience in California, those people don't even know where Ohio is. <laughs> Shots. Uh, that's why the magic happens, you know? Ohio, Michigan, these just run-down industrial towns. If you don't make your own fun... There's nothing else know, to like, do. Yeah. yeah. and But like what Sean said is, like, when someone stays, you know? 
I mean, it's, you know, it's Prince in Minneapolis. It's, you know, like anybody, anybody that could be on the coast and wants there to be more of that happening. Like that's, yeah, I don't know, man. That's just totally hip that that's kind of how the scene continued. You know? Yeah. yeah. So, so many other bands after they got big suddenly became either a band from LA or a band from New York, no matter right. where they started from. <laughs> Pretty sure Devo didn't stay in Ohio. I think they went to Los Angeles. <laughs> Ooh, Peter's calling out Mark. <laughs> yeah. Traitors. Another point in the legendary Devo versus slave debate. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get into a little bio on the band Slave. So we mentioned the Ohio Players being a huge influence, and they're also an integral part of this band's story. Slave was initially founded by band leader and multi-instrumentalist Stephen C. Washington, who most sources, if you look around, would say that he is the nephew of Ralph Pee Wee Middlebrooks from the Ohio Players. When, but I was lied to. Yeah, it's not entirely the whole truth. I mean, he refers to him as his uncle, but they are not blood-related. Somehow, this kid, Stephen C. Washington, who at the time lived in New Jersey, was such a big fan of the Ohio players that he met them and befriended them to the point where they just took him under their wing and Ralph Pee Wee Middlebrooks let him move in with him and transfer to Dayton and finish high school in Dayton while living with a member of the Ohio players, which I don't know how that happened, but that's just kind of amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Ohio players are kind of the MVP of this episode, actually. In, in a lot of ways. Yeah. <laughs> so he's living with the Ohio players who are like the only people that he knows in Dayton at that time. And then he happens to meet a guy named Mark Hicks, who will later go by the nickname Drac. And Drac suggested that they form their own band. I mean, at that point, you know, Stephen's dream was basically just, well, I'm living with the Ohio players, and maybe after high school I can join the Ohio players. But as fate would have it, they decide to hold some auditions. Drac is a local, so he knows the other players and can line them up. And they start a group called Black Satin Soul, which also features Slaves drummer Tim Dozier. And they're playing around the scene. They later fuse with another local group called the Young Mystics, which featured slave members, trombonist Floyd Miller, bassist Mark Adams, and horn player Tom Lockett. It also featured a young Steve Arrington. However, when the Young Mystics broke up to form this new group, he decided to move to L.A. and try and make it big there. And we'll bring his name back up later. Slave was formed off of these two groups. They also added a few extra members, Danny Webster on guitar and vocals, Carter Bradley on keyboards, and Orion Wilhoit on saxophone. So they formed in late 1975 and played their first show in April of 1976 at a local high school. After coming up in the Dayton scene, they decided they wanted to get signed. You know, they had contemporaries getting signed and the, the Dayton scene was hot. However, they were turned down at every single label audition that they went to. Feeling kind of discouraged but not ready to give up, Steve decided to move the entire band back to East Orange, New Jersey, his hometown. In fact, the entire band lived with Steve's mom for a little while. And part of his plan was that he had a friend who was a radio programmer in the area and also had ties to Atlantic Records. Kind of a long shot, but it worked. They were soon signed to the Atlantic subsidiary label Cotillion, 
and released their debut self-titled album in 1977. As we said, Slide was their biggest hit, um, also their biggest pop crossover hit. It was just a huge success for them. And then they quickly, within just a few months, rushed back into the studio and released this second album, The Hardness of the World. So you're saying the first uh, gig they played was April 1976. Yes. And then their so Atlantic records. Their first like less record than a year comes later. out a year <laughs> after that. And it's, you know, it sounds like some hard luck story. They were just scrabbling to try to make it within less than a year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the odds were stacked against them. And then they, if that's not enough, they released their second album within a few months. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the interesting thing you know so many labels and artists they have the story of like there was a hit and then they couldn't follow it up and the band folded whereas somehow cotillion atlantic kept them on because this record and the record that followed it the concept both didn't really have big hit singles critically acclaimed you know loyal fan base and all but like they weren't moving units yeah well, i was surprised at like the choices for singles from the hardness of the world mm-hmm yeah, you know, like like they're decent tunes, and one of them is one of my favorite tunes on the record. But it's basically an instrumental for six minutes. Exactly. Like it doesn't seem like there's any obvious <laughs> singles on here, and it it just again speaks to how different the music industry was at this point, where right labels would sometimes just take chances on artists and let them experiment with their sound. And in the case of Slave, it paid off because after, you know, they had the huge hit with their first record. They had two kind of weak follow-ups, even though the music was great. And then in between that point, they added a few more members, including former Young Mystics member Steve Arrington, who we mentioned, who eventually became the actual lead singer of this group. And in 1979 and 1980, they released back-to-back certified classics. Uh, The albums Just a Touch of Love and Stone Jam both had major hit singles and many famous hip-hop samples, including the track Watching You, which was the sample and inspiration for Gin and Juice. (laughs) That I quoted in my fake title. Exactly. Uh, That's what that was. uh Full circle once again. So after the record Stone Jam in 1980, Steve Washington and several other members left to form the band Aura, who's also an amazing funk band and again like has a really interesting mix of the hard funk and the smooth R&B. And then shortly after that Steve Arrington also left the group to start a moderately successful solo career and also more recently a few releases on Stone's Throw that are really really good. Oh nice. And Steve Washington Uh, eventually married a member of the Brides of Funkenstein, Sheila Washington, and continued to be a frequent collaborator with George Clinton throughout the years up until I think he retired somewhere around 2015. He's kind of a quiet, reserved guy who's been in the background of a lot of funk songs and has a lot of uncredited appearances on tracks. He's playing and I think helped write the song Do Fries Go With That Shake by George Clinton. (laughs) Nice as well as many other notable appearances. George Clinton being the mastermind behind Funkadelic and Parliament, for those who don't know. But if you're listening to this episode, you probably know. (laughs) (laughs) Whenever Peter starts to say something, it's either like an iteration of something pretty well-known or something insanely obscure and nothing in between. (laughs) 
<laughs> You're right. I do operate at those ends of, of things. Yeah. And that's what I appreciate. One of the many reasons you. why we love you. Yeah, oh, exactly. You. Nothing but love. Yeah, one of my critiques about this show has been be more middle brow. <laughs> I'll keep that in mind. We get, we get so many reviews to that effect, you wouldn't even believe it. Spe- speaking of which, just while, since you just said that, listeners, please leave us a review. We need reviews on these platforms. If you can, whatever platform you can re- leave a review on of the show, please do. You know, hey, s- state what your favorite album is. Maybe we'll read a review if we really like it. Yeah, if you write it in all caps, we're even more likely to read it. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I was wondering if you if you had uh, one of those segments planned for this episode. Uh, not for this one, but it'll be back. It will. It will I'm not be back. Forget about it. It will yeah. be back. Just so it's just not going to be every episode, listeners. I want to give people just a touch of that segment. You know, don't want to oversaturate it. In case you missed it, it was the previous episode to this one that... No, it was two episodes ago. Two episodes ago that Sean unveiled this segment. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. Michael Franks. Yes, that episode. So we mentioned before that Sly and the Family Stone was an obvious influence on here, which I had read uh, Steve Washington talking about who some of his earliest influences are. So aside from Sly and the Family Stone and the Ohio Players, can you guys guess a couple of the other big names that were an early inspiration for the sound of slave. Oh, let me guess. James Brown. Yes. <laughs> and another massive funk band that we have covered before. Earth, Wind, and Fire. You got it. Good job, guys. I'm flexing wow, I was, over here. I, I wanted to say that, but I felt all shy and reticent for some reason. <laughs> uh-huh. Like, what's, yeah, what's that about? Well, yeah, especially like the Earth, Wind, and Fire horn section. That's yeah. Those mm-hmm. harmonies, and they're not afraid to do. Well, now I'm gonna sound like a dork. They're not afraid to do those major seven harmonies in a funk song. Exactly. You gotta get those complicated chords in there to make it interesting. Yeah, the yeah the jazz horn section vibe is all over that, mm-hmm. which is like again the smooth element. Like it took me years to dig Earth, Wind, and Fire because they weren't hard. Right. And then. One day it clicked, you know, and, and you're like, oh, they're, yeah, they're bringing it just in yeah. <laughs> very, very more, you know, not more sophisticated, but it's definitely sophisticated. It's, uh, you know, it's, it, it's fancier than I could handle for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, salt of the earth bloke I am. <laughs> <laughs> Well, as we've said before, sometimes it can be challenging to get into smooth music if you're not used to it. Yeah, well, so much of it comes out of like when you're young, you know, and in my teenage years, you know, the more abrasive, the better across genres. And then uh, I guess you grow up at some point and so do your ears. I don't know. Your ears mature. So the last early influence of Steve Washington that I wasn't quite expecting is that he was a big Led Zeppelin fan as well. Oh, well, there, there's a band that released their first two albums within a few months of each other. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I actually thought about that when we were talking. And so that's my connection there. Oh, and they were on Atlantic. Yeah, exactly. Basically label mates. Interesting. And we've talked about this before. There were so many bands that got labeled as strictly funk or R&B or the genre term middle of the road that doesn't really get used as much anymore but there's a lot of these black bands that were thrown into these genres and only promoted on black radio that 
you know, if they'd had complete creative control in a non-racist music industry, probably would have been rock bands. And yeah. when you listen to these hard funk groups, you really, you have to note that like hard rock influence happening here. They're just translating it in a different way. Mm-hmm. I don't think we've played any in the clips yet, but there is some gnarly shredding guitar in some of these oh, tracks yeah. too. Yeah. Yeah. Complete with like some like feedback and <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it's it's raw. Yeah. Definitely hear that rock influence there. Yeah. Well, should we get into another track right now then? Let's do it. Yeah, I'd like to hear the uh one of the failed singles. And as a single, everyone will probably figure out why real quick, but as like a just wicked friggin' jam, this one is kind of this is kind of what made me pick this album, this tune. And which tune is it? Baby Sinister. Side one, track four. and a lot of the other Ohio funk bands obviously had a big influence on 90s West Coast hip-hop. And I really wish there were like a couple moments on Dr. Dre's The Chronic where they kind of just let things ride out the instrumentals for a little bit. And I wish there was more of that because there's something to be said for just kind of letting the groove go for a little while, like on that track there. I mean, it's it's a strange choice for a single in 1977, (laughs) but... (laughs) <laughs> as far as you know a deep cut on an album it's it's great to just get down to and groove to for a little bit yeah it's just that kind of feeling that 
yeah, it's unrelenting in its repetition, but it does the thing that good repetition does, like in any genre, in Krautrock, whatever, where that intensity builds and in the mix, little ideas just slowly bubble up. I mean, I guess that's really like why it makes no sense as a single, because you need all six minutes to see where they're taking it. And this is also when disco is really at like its biggest point you know you're not really getting much of the pushback yet and you got tons of these artists that are hitting the charts with extended 12 inch versions of their songs and long instrumental sections going on so i guess it kind of yeah. makes sense that they would think maybe they could hop on that but this is still just fundamentally a little bit different you know yeah well because it's still gnarly mm-hmm. you know and and it's in a way it's very skeletal like the bass and the bass on this album is something we should talk about for sure. Oh my god, the bass. But like there's stuff on the, you know, on this cut where it's just so simple but it's just pounding. And uh I yeah, it's just like you said it's 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 to the left of anything that it could be sold as. Yeah. It you know with that was there that flange in there on the one? Yeah. That, that's that 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 James Brown famously, you know, like told uh his band, like you guys need to learn how to do the one <laughs> you, yep. you, you hit on the one. <laughs> they were definitely yep. doing that there. Yeah. They the, had the funk secrets on the downbeat figured out. We got to mention by name, this bass player again, Mark Adams, who in my opinion has got to just be like one of the all time great bassists in funk music, such a unique style. So influential, you know, taking some of that like Sly and the family stone influence, but making it his own and, throwing in some non-traditional accidental notes in there, some weird slides, effects, and it just it holds it down. It keeps it nasty. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think he's one of the main reasons it always kind of has like a raunchy vibe, you know? Mm-hmm. The the word that uh, Liara used on our Cheryl Lynn episode, stanky. Exactly. Ah. <laughs> it's got that stanky bass on these tracks. Yeah. We've talked before with some bands how you know, if you're a horn player, you might approach the writing in kind of a different way, or you have multiple musicians in a band who all kind of think the same way and have a different, unique approach to songwriting. So not only do we have Mark Adams, one of the greatest bass players ever, but Steve Washington, who mainly played trumpet in the group, was also mainly a bassist. So you got two guys who are really thinking about this low-end groove when they're composing the songs and working these things out, and it definitely shows with this band. Well, the rhythms are just so heavy on... Like, like that's part of the greatness of the production, too, is these, like, the way the rhythms are broken up to create the whole. Yeah. And the way that plays in the stereo spectrum, like, whether it's a, like, claustrophobic amount of stuff going on or something more sparse, like the last cut we played, everything falls right into place and creates, like, the groove. It's also kind of a reverse Isley Brothers because we talked about how the Isley brothers were mostly a vocal group. And then when they mm. added the younger siblings in, they added this layer of musicality going on. Whereas this group, the first two records are almost like instrumental albums with some vocals sprinkled on top. Oh, yeah. Like you're not going to say that the vocals are the main thing here, but <laughs> once they add in Steve Arrington, yeah. he becomes the lead singer. They keep all of the elements of their instrumental genius and then add these incredible vocals on top of it. So it makes total sense why they 
just made these absolutely perfect records towards the the late 70s early 80s i wonder yeah. if it ever got confusing having steve arrington and steve washington in the same band it must have been also you got mark adams on bass and mark hicks on guitar i mean it's amazing they didn't break up right away that's just <laughs> so much stuff they should have called themselves s and s and m and m I think I think pretty much everybody in this group went by nicknames primarily. Some of the interviews I saw they only introduced themselves by their nicknames. Nice. I only said Drac, but you know, they've all they've all got them. Steve Washington was the fearless leader. Oh, that's right. I saw that in the liner notes on one of them. I think that's in the liners on um damn it's on Stone Jam. I don't know. And you know it's crazy and we've probably talked about this before, like how these records that had huge hits on them and everything like late seventies funk stuff can still be found for like five bucks in the racks. Yeah, definitely. Like I, like I have six slave albums and I've probably paid $20 for them total. Yeah. Sounds about right. (laughs) It's, and it's, I mean, it's like the perfect example of like what this show talks about, you know, that, there are so many amazing records that just, and it's almost like they get lost to time or something. Mm-hmm. And this record, the hardness of the world in particular, I feel like is the most underrated of their whole catalog. And some of that might even be because of the artwork too. The, oh, the cover man. on this doesn't look like the rest of the record of the records. And it doesn't really look like a funk record either. No, it does it, not. It drew me in. That art totally drew me in, but yeah, you're right because it's the album called "The Hardness of the World" has the chillest cover, but it's like deceptively chill because the first thing you notice is this you know big beautiful swan, and you're like, what weird folk record is this? But the more right. you look at it, there's like some like trash and like possible drug paraphernalia in yep. the in the foreground, and you know the more you look at the background of it it's like this is kind of a moody depressing album cover that you initially think is this like happy pretty thing and that that plays perfectly off of those lyrical elements we were talking about earlier the lyrical and the musical elements because there's like yeah like the song we're going to go out on here is directly hitting that up like the all the stuff that the cover kind of insinuates but I think the over, the end vibe of the album, the world is hard, you know, and get on with it. You can still be happy. You can still create something beautiful in the middle yeah. of all the bullshit. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, spe- speaking of cover art, I mean, some of that stuff's so iconic. Like, uh, obviously, the first album, that image. Mm-hmm. That's what I always think of know? when I think of this band. Yeah, oh, well, I mean for your band to be called slave and to have that cover image, which, you know, to me says, you know, the black man has the weight of the world on his shoulders. You know, it's, it's a heavy statement. Yeah. That was how I originally heard this band as I came across that album and was like, Whoa, that's very provocative. Yeah. It's striking Mm -hmm. cover. And it just said slave on the front and, no album title and i was like i think i texted sean and was like sean what is this album and he's like oh that's sick you should get that <laughs> yeah <totally. laughs> don't sean worry about it just buy approval it. yeah <laughs> well you guys want to hear about a few recommended dollar bin albums do it yes are any of them gap band 
No, but they very well could be. Okay. Uh, maybe maybe you can recommend some Gap Band after I drop this short list on us. Okay. Uh, so the first one, I mentioned Rick James before, primarily known for his harder funk stuff. But in 1980, he dropped a record called Garden of Love that was kind of an experimental, mostly ballad-driven record that didn't really have hits and has kind of been forgotten. And I think people weren't really into it when it came out. But really good example of that contrast of styles and a very overlooked wonderful rick james record another one is a record that i really love and want to feature on the show at some point confunctions secrets from 1977 again the mix of r&b and hard funk elements on there that's a group that i was checking out right around the time i first was listening to that debut slave album definitely excellent group and my last recommendation is got to be Heatwave. But if you check out their debut album, also from 1977, Too Hot to Handle, you're going to find a lot of interesting comparisons to this album, as we've said. So those are my recommendations. Anybody else got some dollar bin tips for the people? I mean, the one I mentioned, Gap Band, the one I have is uh, called Gap Band 4, which is actually the sixth album. <laughs> <laughs> but it's from 82 so it's a little little more uh you know further down the funk line but still really there's a good. lot of gap band comparisons too though because those earliest gap band records really just sound like p-funk and they were kind of on a similar tip to what slave is doing here that that hard funk parlant funkadelic sound going on are gap band philadelphia Oh shoot! Where are the Gap Band from? I'm always forgetting this. I'm gonna have to look it up now. But always. I don't think they're Philadelphia. Sean's just repeatedly asked where the Gap Band is from. <laughs> yeah, he, every day people ask me, and I'm like, oh it. man. <laughs> you and then the eventually Uber? I'm like, oh yeah, it's Tulsa, Oklahoma. <laughs> oh wow, that's right. Yeah. Oh wow, that's right. I'm and here. We are roasting on Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking Philly because it wasn't, uh, you were hearing one of their solo songs on the radio there when you first moved there, right, Sean? Oh, yeah. There was a Charlie Wilson single that they were playing on the radio here for a bit. Yeah. That's right. Anyway. Anyway. Well, this is a great album. I'm glad you kind of brought Slave back on my radar. I, I need to check out more of their stuff. You know, I'm just only so familiar well, yeah, and um, I mean, Sean would recommend, I'm sure, like, uh, we apparently we were both listening to it at the same time today, oddly, Just a Touch of Love. Yeah, from 79. Because that's, yeah, the fourth album. That's where, like, um, when Sean was talking about Steve Arrington really uh, taking the reins uh, vocally and um, that smoothness kind of being interjected, but not in a way that it never doesn't sound like what you what slaves should sound like it's i guess that's like that's what sets them apart these they sound like the sum total of these parts as opposed to like a certain band mm -hmm. you can tell their influences but you you could never accuse this group of just being a ripoff of somebody else they weren't lazy exactly they kept pushing it they kept going different places when they acquired different vibes it was a, like in service to what they were doing as opposed to like oh we'll hop on this bandwagon real quick mm -hmm. 
So my final thoughts on this record and Slave, like you said, the Just a Touch of Love and also Stone Jam. I would argue that probably both those records are better than this one, but this album is still a really interesting example of a band in transition, which is something I've always been fascinated with. I, I notice I have a thing for that second album with bands mm-hmm. like the one that's just the you know you could go you know here's like a comical example of it on some level given how people think think about now but beastie boys paul's, you boutique. Know, paul's boutique is kind of the feather in the cap but at the time you know that could have been the end of their career and there's like so many bands like slave where like what i dig is you know it's it's before they're where they're at Mm-hmm. But there's like always a cool hunger in that with a band, especially with those two albums coming out within months of each other. Yeah. And that's where you find the real overlooked gems. And like you said, the first five, even honestly, the first six records by this group are all very worth picking up. Self-titled, Hardest of the World, The Concept, Just a Touch of Love, Stone Jam, and Showtime. Highly recommended. Ooh, all never six heard of them. Showtime. It's got some moments. It's not quite as good. Like you can tell the band is starting to fall apart, but man, it's got some jams right. on it still. Well, that's after Steve Washington leaves, right? Yes. He's yeah. in Aura at that point. And I think it's the last record that Steve Arrington was on. Oh, okay. Yep. So that's been the episode. I think it's it's time right. to play this final track and get no, out of here. No, it's not. No, no, oh, no, oh, no. Wait. I'm happening? shutting you down to ask Bob. Bob, what do you have out in the world right now? Ooh, stuff. Let's see. Well, let's see. Uh, last month, an album came out on my label, Personal Archives, by Sam Locke Ward, who's an amazing home taper from Iowa, and Mike Watt, who people who listen to this show probably know Mike Watt from Minutemen, Firehose, and a million other things. So it's been really exciting to work with them. I played uh, horn on a couple albums of theirs already and um otherwise i've just been working on solo material and uh with a group i'm in called sex funeral and slowly kind of looking at getting back on the road i've been really laying back in my time off so i'm either retired or starting over let's see yeah (laughs) well at least come back come down to philadelphia at least once before you retire We'll, we'll we'll be talking after this episode. All right, cool. cool. <laughs> Consider Kalamazoo, Michigan, as well, Bob. I don't know. I just saw a band from Kalamazoo uh, last week, and uh, Jared Selner was in it. So I think I got my fill of Kalamazoo. <laughs> was that, that was my test to harsh. see if he listens to this or not? Was that fake baseball? <laughs> fake baseball. Yeah. Can I, can I uh, do a product endorsement? Absolutely. Fake, fake baseball, an amazing band. So much fun to work with. Um, the hardest band I'll ever do sound for in terms of like wonderful, ingenious complexity, since most of my sound jobs involve trying to get one vocal mic over <laughs> bands playing full stacks in a basement <laughs> with a 10 foot high ceiling. Yeah, fake baseball have a lot going on in their setup. Oh. Well, it's kind of like talking about Slave. Like, there is so much happening with that band, but it all has a place. It all complements each other and sonically fits into, like, for a live band to have their sound down that well, you know, like comparing it to what I'm hearing on the album, 
on the recording, it's like, oh, they took that template and decided to make a live band out of it. Yeah. Like that 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 takes something called effort, which I am unfamiliar with. So <laughs> on a personal level. Well, I'm glad that you used half of your plug section to talk about a band that none of us are in. <laughs> That's Jer- honorable of you. It's damn Jer- decent. Jeremy and I have seen that band. True. I think I helped with some mixing stuff on their record too, but I think I saw your name on the back of the CD. Yes. Yeah, I don't remember doing that, but apparently I did. <laughs> you do so much well, mixing. Once it, once it makes the Discogs listing, it really happened. Yeah. <laughs> well, Bob, it's so good to have you back yet again. Um, oh, you know, so I think good talking with y'all. So I, I, are we going to follow a pattern here? Are you going to come back and talk about uh, piano virtuoso duo next time you're on? <laughs> we kind of rotate between funk. And... Yeah, it's, yeah, it was, it's yeah, it's either like Van Cliburn or Liberace or something, or uh, <laughs> you know, some terrible Christmas album compilation from KTEL or something. I don't know. <laughs> Coming soon from Bob Bucko, the Chandelier Music Sound. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll pick something where you can smell the mildew while you listen. <laughs> Looking so forward to it. Full sensory yeah. experience. <laughs> well, thanks again, Bobby. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in to yet another installment of I'd Buy That for a Dollar. What are we going out on? What's our final cut? Uh, we're going to go out on The World's On Hard. So it's like a video game where you can put it on easy, medium, or hard. Is that what they're saying? Like the world is... Well, I don't think I we mean, have a they, choice of what they, uh, difficulty level the world is on. <laughs> I'm just kind of born <laughs> into it. <laughs> yeah, they they were a prescient band, but I think Pong was the only thing happening then. So Yeah. <laughs> All right. Fantastic. Well, I am Peter Cook. Thanks for listening to I'd Buy That for a Dollar. I'm Jeremy Ruggles. Thank you for listening to I'd Buy That for a Dollar. I'm Sean Hartman, and I guess thanks for listening to I'd Buy That for a Dollar. I'm Bob Bucko Jr. and Fake Baseball is a good band. <laughs> <laughs> they are paying you. They better be after this. <laughs>